we're talking about the uh, Sangyuta Nikaya, also in English, the Connected Discourses of the Buddha, one of the four main Nikayas. And we are in Salayatana Sangyuta, so uh, teachings which are grouped according to their subject matter. And Salayatana is the sixfold uh, um, sense spheres uh, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And it's number 95 called Malunkya Putta. Then the Venerable Malunkya Putta approached the Blessed One and said to him, Venerable Sir, it would be good if the Blessed One would teach me the Dhamma in brief, so that, having heard the Dhamma from the Blessed One, I might dwell alone, withdrawn, ardent, and resolute. And so it would happen that uh, the monks would personally approach the Buddha and ask for a special meditation object, so to speak, and a special teaching, and once the Buddha gives them a special teaching, and the Buddha has you know, the unique uh, ability of doing that, and he can look deep into a person's mind, what kind of practices they have done in the past, what kind of defilements, and what kind of spiritual faculties are strong and dominant or weak. And then they give a kind of uniquely tailored, suitable advice to that individual. But of course, there's a limit, considering that there might have been a hundred thousands of monks and nuns, there's a limit how many people the Buddha could advise in such an individual manner. So our Buddha had a style where he would explain the Dhamma very extensively, and then the monks would learn that and pass it around. And uh, he had an expectation that monks and nuns can also practice uh, with uh, self-reliance without having to go to him and the Buddha then sorting out whatever problem they have. He expected them using the teaching he had given very extensively and then um, developing their own wisdom and figuring out largely themselves how to apply these teachings to the issues that arise in their mind. However, occasionally monks would still approach him and ask for individual advice. And this is the case here with Venerable Malunkya Putta. Here now, Malunkya Putta, what should I say to the young bhikkhus when a bhikkhu like you, old, aged, burdened with years, advanced in life, come to the last stage, ask me for an exhortation in brief? So it's exactly another thing I just mentioned. would not be possible for the Buddha if all the hundred thousands of monks and nuns would constantly come to him and asking personal advice. There's not enough hours in the day to do that. And yet the expectations that they can use the extensive teachings the Buddha had given self-reliantly and then figure out their own issues. So he kind of rejects him a little bit, in particular as he's obviously very senior. 
So he seems to be uh, physically old, but I think it's apparent that he has also been in robes for a long time, in particular a monk who was, say, Mahatheva, 20 years and longer in the, in, in the robes. Now they, they shouldn't need you know, the Buddha like a mama or like a nurse or something, just constantly giving personal advice. Also can relate to the old age burden, because sometimes you know, getting older I feel a bit like that, particularly yesterday. We had this young kid here and we got into a good discussion and he was asking me a question about Dhamma. Then he was also asking me, um, when I'm born, what is my birthday? So I asked back, what do you guess? What do you think? How old am I? And he said, 70. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I felt old, aged, burdened with years, advanced in life, come to the last stage. Tongue and cheek, I didn't really feel like that. So when Malunkya Buddha continues pressing the Buddha, although, Venerable Sir, I am old, aged, burdened with years, advanced in life, come to the last stage, let the Blessed One teach me the Dhamma in brief, let the Fortunate One teach me the Dhamma in brief, perhaps I may understand the meaning of the Blessed One's statement, Perhaps I may become an heir to the Blessed One's statement. So he's really determined. Now, to some extent, the Buddha is also giving these first, a bit rejecting answer in the tour, get him to 100% commit himself. Now, I noticed uh, recently, when uh, listening to some Dhamma talks on YouTube, we have this consumerist attitude nowadays and listen to a talk on YouTube but after 10-15 minutes it's maybe not quite what you expected or it gets a little bit boring, you have heard similar things and then you click on the next talk which is on the suggestion feed and listen to that for a short while and then you think oh, maybe I should listen to that other teacher. Not so venerable Malunkya Buddha. Now, when he is asking the Buddha now for the second time, now really please give me the teaching, and now I can hopefully now really understand it. And he really commits to whatever the Buddha tells him now, and really wants to take it on, practice it, contemplate it, understand it. So, and of course, with his great compassion, the Buddha now um, indulges him. What do you think, Malonkya Buddha? Do you have any desire, lust, or affection for those forms cognizable by the eye that you have not seen and never saw before, that you do not see, and would not think I might see them? It's a very simple question. I mean, this is obviously the central problem. The desire, lust, affection, this is exactly what Malunkya Buddha and anyone who wants to abandon suffering has to abandon. 
because these things are exactly the cause of suffering, attachment, desire, lust, defilements, craving. And the Buddha here points to the cause, that is a hallmark of the Buddha's teaching, the dependent origination, Indapatriyata, uh, investigating causes and conditions, investigating uh, results, and then uh, abandoning the causes and conditions, and then the results will also be abandoned. And here, it is very obvious that we could not possibly have desire, lust of affection for a visible, a visible object, a form is a visible object, something one can see. If we do not see it, we have never seen it. And we can't even imagine seeing that. Isn't it it's very apparent that we couldn't have desire for that? In order for any desire to arise, there has to be a sense contact. If you have desire for food, there has to be some idea about a particular food or some fragrance you smell or you see the food or you have some memory of eating that food. If all that was lacking, then the desire couldn't arise. So the sense contact and the six sense fears now are a necessary condition for desire, affection and lust. And the Buddha points it out by this simple example. So for something you have never seen, you do not see now and you can't even imagine seeing, would you have any desire, lust or affection? No, Venerable Sir. And then the same for sounds, odors, tastes, tactile sensations and mental ideas. Any of those which you have never thought about, which you are not thinking about now, which you can't even imagine thinking about, could such ideas and of course desire, lust or uh, affection? No, Vanabusa. And now the Buddha continues with a very famous teaching is known as the Bahya Sutta. It's an identical teaching now which you find in the famous instruction to Venerable Bahya. Here, Malankya Putta, regarding things seen, heard, sensed and cognized by you. This is a shortened expression for the six senses, for the six the forms of sense contact, seen, heard, cognizedness, mental sense contact. And the term translated here as sensed in Pali Namutta refers to smelling, tasting and physical sensations. It's a short shorthand for these three. regarding things seen, heard, sensed and cognized by you in the seen there will be merely the seen in the heard there will be merely the heard 
in the sensed, there will be merely the sensed. In the cognized, there will be merely the cognized. Then, my Lankyaputta, regarding things seen, heard, sensed and cognized by you, in the seen there will be merely the seen, in the heard there will be merely the heard, in the sensed there will be merely the sensed, in the cognized there will be merely the cognized, then, Malonkya Putta, you will not be by that. When Malonkya Putta, you are not by that, then you will not be within it. When Malonkya Putta, you are not within it, then you will be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. This itself is the end of suffering. That is exactly the same instruction Venerable Bahia received and uh, where Venerable Bahia attained full Nibbana, Avahanship, freedom from defilement by listening and understanding that instruction right on the spot and then uh, being declared by the Buddha as a disciple with the quickest understanding. Not quite sure how you are doing. Is it all fully clear to you? In the seen, heard, sensed and cognized, there will only be the cognized. And when that is the case, then you will not be by that. When you're not by that, you will not be in it. When you're not in it, then will be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. This itself is the end of suffering. I assume it's maybe not 100% clear because that is a very famous teaching known also for its quite cryptic meaning and not easy to interpret and explain. But very beautifully in this sutta, Venerable Malonkyaputta now got it at least to some extent. He doesn't become an Avahant. But he says, I understand in detail, Venerable Sir, the meaning of what was stated by the Blessed One in brief. And now he composes some spontaneous verses. It's actually an amazing thing those days the people still had the ability of uh, composing poetry, verses, you know, metered verse, spontaneously on deep spiritual matters. And then the Buddha did that a lot. But even this old monk burdened in years and so on at the last stage is doing that now. And uh, the beautiful thing is that he gives us now an explanation of the meaning of that cryptic instruction to Bahia. And uh, after he has spoken, the Buddha actually repeats it ver verbally, literally. And by repeating literally what Venerabhaya is saying, you know, the Buddha makes it Buddha Vachana, makes it the word of the Buddha, the meaning that it was recorded and remembered. And this is why we still have this teaching. And also meaning that the Buddha in a hundred percent agrees with Venerabhaya, because he would never say something himself which is not 100% the Dhamma. 
uh, I'd like to present my own translation for these verses from Venerable Bahir, explaining the more cryptic teaching. Excuse me, the, uh, my own translation of the verses of Venerable Malonkya Putta, explaining the cryptic teaching that was given to him and to Venerable Bahir. Unmindfully, he sees a form that he regards as beautiful, and with infatuated mind, he relishes the feeling which he gets from that beloved form. He latches onto it so strong that his poor heart is overwhelmed by lust and passion before long. Therefore, he builds up suffering. Nibbana remains far from him. Unmindfully, she hears a sound that she regards as beautiful, and with infatuated mind, she relishes the feeling which she gets from that enchanting sound. She latches onto it so strong that her poor heart is overwhelmed by lust and passion before long. Therefore, she is building up despair. Nibbana remains far from her. Notice to make a little bit more gender neutral, I alternate between he and she, because the teaching here is giving to a monk, so the Buddha would obviously use he. But as the teaching is meant for everyone, I alternate with the pronoun. Unmindfully, he smells a scent that he regards as beautiful. In Pali, Subha Nimetang Manasi Karoti, you focus on the beautiful aspect, you see what is attractive there. In any of the sense spheres, you hear something, you see something, you taste something. And now you focus on the alluring, attractive features because you're lacking mindfulness. That is one um, effect of the lacking mindfulness that one gets caught up by the subanimita, by the quality of attractiveness. And as one gets caught up in that, then one gets lost in it and one starts you know, to relish this pleasant feeling which comes up because you know, if we focus on the attractive aspect, and it has something attractive, and we relish it, and we latches onto that, and then uh, all kinds of pleasant feelings arise, it feels very good. He latches onto it so strong that his poor heart is overwhelmed by lust and passion before long. And one identifies, one grasps and holds on to that feeling, to that beautiful, attractive quality to that scent or sound or form. And the, and the, the result is that one is overwhelmed by desire and aversion, by liking and disliking, and by lust and passion. In Pali, in the Vihanyati, the mind is like mashed up, chopped up almost, completely overwhelmed by this combination of strong feelings arising 
and the mind being carried away by that. Therefore, he builds up suffering, Nibbana remains far from him. Unmindfully, she tastes a taste that she regards as beautiful, and with infatuated mind, she relishes the feeling which she gets from that seductive taste. The first is only a taste, but now you're not mindful, and then you go for the attractive quality. Once we do that, and again lacking mindfulness, then we start in a relishing, really indulging, could also say indulging. You really go for it, you really want to get this full feeling, the full sensation. And then the pleasant feeling that arises, maybe latch onto that as well. And once we are latching onto that feeling, we want to relish and indulge in it, yeah, attached now to that taste in this case. The heart gets overwhelmed and chopped up by the lust and passion, and also by the aversion and dislike. As long as we can get more and indulge more, then it's mostly lust and passion. The moment when it's suddenly finished, we don't have it anymore, then comes the aversion, the dejection. And someone else takes it away from us while we are trying to continue relishing and indulging. And then comes the anger, aversion, hatred. And the heart is messed up by that. Therefore, she's building up despair. Nibbana remains far from her. Unmindfully, he feels a touch that he regards as beautiful. And with infatuated mind, he relishes the feeling which he gets from that delightful touch. He latches onto it so strong that his poor heart is overwhelmed by lust and passion before long. Therefore, he builds up suffering. Nibbana remains far from him. I also want to mention that you can extend that also on the negative side. Although in this example, the Buddha talks only about lust and passion from an attractive Nimitta from uh, attractive quality, you can also have the opposite. You see something that is hideous, that is ugly, and then you latch onto the asubha nimitta, on the repulsive, unattractive quality, and then uh, aversion and uh, dislike and anger never arise. So we could express it now for the mind door, as an example, unmindfully she thinks a thought that she regards as hideous. With strong aversion in her mind, she cannot bear the feeling which she gets from that repugnant thought. She latches onto it so strong that her poor heart is overwhelmed by hate and loathing before long. Therefore, she is building up despair Nibbana remains far from her. 
going through the same here on the side of aversion. And uh, the uh, building up, the accumulating of dukkha. As these feelings grow, as the indulgence, the relishing grows, as the latching on, identifying, grasping, intensifies, and we are just building up suffering, building up, accumulating more and more suffering. Of course, now comes the resolution, how to get out of it. He doesn't get obsessed with forms as he maintains firm mindfulness. The feeling can't excite us hard as he's not holding on to it. When seeing fair and ugly forms, when he is feeling joy and pain, white then his mindfulness kicks in and he lets go and doesn't cling. Thus he dismantles suffering. Nibbana is white next to him. He doesn't get enticed, or maybe go for she, she doesn't get engrossed in tastes as she maintains firm mindfulness. The feeling can't excite her heart as she's not holding on to it. When tasting sweet and yucky tastes, when she is feeling joy and pain, why then her mindfulness kicks in and she lets go and doesn't cling. Thus she demolishes despair, Nibbana is right next to her. He doesn't get enticed by sense as he maintains firm mindfulness. Now this is the, the first step of mindfulness. So you still may experience a beautiful sense or sights or sounds. The mindfulness doesn't mean that you can just block it all out and switch it all off. Just go in a cave and there's no sense contact. But you do experience them. But the mindfulness means you don't allow yourself to be enticed, to be caught up in it. If you're not enticed, if you're not caught up in it, then the feeling can't excite your heart. The feeling doesn't overwhelm you. You're not holding on to it. You're not trying to indulge and relish. And uh, at the same time, while you still feel or smell fine and nasty sense, and while you still have the pleasant and unpleasant feeling arising, even the Buddha, when he uh, smells something really yucky, like a uh, decomposing corpse or something, now the, even the Buddha will have an unpleasant feeling. But now right then, mindfulness kicks in and one lets go and doesn't cling. One is aware of these feelings arising, but mindfulness now reminds you not to latch on but to drop it, to see it as not me, not mine, to see it as impermanent, to see it as disappointing, so that one can simply let go, that one doesn't get stuck on it. And this is now how we dismantle suffering, how we 
do the opposite now of building up and accumulating suffering, no? reducing it, deconstructing it. She doesn't get absorbed in thoughts as she maintains firm mindfulness. The feeling can't excite her heart as she's not holding onto it. When thinking great and ghastly thoughts, when she is feeling joy and pain, right then her mindfulness kicks in and she lets go and doesn't cling. Thus she demolishes despair. Nibbana is right next to her. You may notice I have actually left out a few of them because maybe you have 12 times the whole thing. They're going through all six senses, both in the building up suffering and in the deconstructing, demolishing suffering mode. But the time is a little bit short. And also for modern listeners, it usually tends to get boring if you repeat the same thing six times. And you usually find that in the translations, this is only volume two of the Sangyutta Nikaya. There's another volume as thick. Volume one is only Sangyutta Nikaya. And if the translators were to print it all out, the whole thing would be multiple volumes for each Nikaya. But there's a drawback in this shortening because it's not so much an intellectual teaching, this is a meditation object. Just listening to your favorite favorite music, and there's endless repetitions in music. And if someone presented you your favorite song without any repetition and just saying etc., you you wouldn't you wouldn't really enjoy that song. And the the point is actually really sometimes when you read that, I would recommend that even write it out if it's a sutta you really like. And not just having heard the sound, having smelled an odor, having enjoyed the taste, and then just boop, boop, boop. And then only for the first and the last, you do the full thing. You do for all six the full thing, so that you actually you know, contemplate it. It is in such a way, Venerable Sir, that I understand in detail the meaning of what was stated by the Blessed One in brief. Good, good, Malunkya Putta. It is good that you understand in detail the meaning of what was stated by me in brief. The Buddha here repeats the above verses in full. So if you were present there and you would be listening, you would get it now 24 times. The first Malunkya Putta, six times building up, suffering for all the six senses, six times. Uh, deconstructing suffering for all the six senses, and now the Buddha doing the same thing. Lots of repetitions, 12, 12 times now. It is in such a way, my Lunkya Putta, that the meaning of what was stated by me in brief should be understood in detail. Then the Venerable Malunkya Putta, having delighted and rejoiced in the Blessed One's words, rose from his seat and, after paying homage to the Blessed One, keeping him on his right, he departed. Then 
dwelling alone, withdrawn, diligent, ardent and resolute, the venerable Malunkya Potin, by realizing it for himself with direct knowledge, in this very life entered and dwelt in that unsurpassed goal of the holy life, for the sake of which um, members of good families go forth from the household life into homelessness. He directly knew, destroyed his birth, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no more for this state of being. And the venerable Mailonkya Putta became one of the Avahans. Exactly five o'clock. <laughs> so uh, I feel it's a very beautiful explanation of the rather cryptic instruction to Venerable Bahir, which is also fantastic because if it's cryptic, it means you really try to figure it out and understand it. And that is one reason that the Buddha sometimes gives quite difficult to understand teachings or very short ones or very cryptic ones because then it motivates people to listen and then hang on, I didn't get that, what, what does he mean? And you investigate. But uh, Venerable Mailonkya's Buddha interpretation, which the Buddha 100% endorsed to the extent of literally repeating it, is a little bit easier to understand a bit easier to practice, more, I think, more pragmatic and uh, easier to apply. Any comments, any questions? It's all very important, having mindfulness. And then whether you see something, you hear something, you sense something, you think something, not getting obsessed with that, not getting drawn in, not getting stuck on it. Now that is the first function of mindfulness. And whenever you have sense contact, then comes feeling. It's always pleasant or unpleasant, you can't prevent that. Even the Buddha has feelings arising from physical sensations in the senses pleasant and unpleasant. But the point is not that these feelings shouldn't excite the heart. They shouldn't carry you away. You don't allow you know, this pleasant feeling you know, to lift us away into this you know, kind of uh, drugged out almost, like of state, like a drug addict you when know, they're high. Or if it's an unpleasant feeling, you know, we don't allow that you know, to push us down into a dejection and depression or anger and aversion. But while we are seeing the fair and ugly, pleasant, unpleasant feelings, while that is happening, the mindfulness kicks in and you remind yourself, impermanent, not me, not mine, and letting go, letting go. So why that is happening, that is important. People often feel, what is a trick, like Malika was asking, or oh, can I switch off this memory? 
Is there one way? Is there some way? You can just erase a memory. And maybe you can erase some memory, but as long as you're a conscious being, you will always have sense contact. And you, you cannot resolve the issue by, by trying to just enclose yourself that you don't have any sense contact anymore. But you have to have mindfulness and wisdom while you have sense contact and why these feelings, pleasant and unpleasant, are arising and why states of liking and dislikings are arising and then to always maintain mindfulness or having at least mindfulness kicking in that you don't get carried away by relishing and indulging in it that you don't get stuck on it by identification and making it an I, me and mine but just now mindfully observing them seeing them arising and passing away and then you dismantle, deconstruct suffering and Nibbana is right next to you Oh yeah, Malika, yes. Ajahn, thank you for explaining this sutta so well. It's good to know that you can use it for the opposite as well. I have Samhita Nikaya with me. Okay, thanks for your compliments. Yeah, that was a little bit a free translation of me. That is just some thing for me. And I should make that very clear. And in the version from Venerable Malunkya Putta, which the Buddha repeats, it's only on the side of the subanimate of getting attracted by the attractive feature and then having a lust, desire, attachment arising. But I feel very confident that uh, it works just as well in the opposite direction. And if there's someone you don't like or you even have strong aversion and then you see them and then immediately you focus on the unattractive feature of that person. And then all these negative feelings arise and all the negative emotions and you get stuck on the negative side just as on the positive. So for me it was a nice exercise in contemplation then also to white it out for both sides. And sometimes my impression is that in ancient India, what's I would think in Thailand, was much more on an attachment to the body and uh, beautiful things and then uh, the desire and liking as it seems in modern society there's maybe more than in ancient India the issues with uh, aversion, hatred, anger, self-hatred, self-loathing and so on. So I think it's important to keep in mind that uh, the same principles work also on the, on the other side, on the negative side. Yes. I was wondering um, the role of wisdom in this approach. So from the Sutta, one gets the impression that simply not attaching to the beautiful aspect, so simply not attaching to the beautiful aspect or the repulsive aspect of the object mindfully is enough. But it seems like an, an element of re reflection or analysis would also be very helpful to avoid falling into this trap. So I'm wondering about that. I totally agree. No, um, usually they go together in the Sati Sampajanya in Pali. The Sampajanya is the wisdom aspect. 
The Kubajans Lungta Mabuani usually says Satipanya. I take that as roughly synonymous to what in the suttas is Sati Sampajanya. And wisdom and mindfulness should always work conjoined together. You have to consider, and this is um, spontaneously composed poetry by this elderly monk, and it has to fit the meter. And uh, I'm feeling quite confident that although he uses only sati here, but uh, it includes wisdom. Because what he's talking about, you can't do it only with sati. What he's talking about is obviously a wisdom, a wisdom practice, an inside practice. It's not only mindfulness. And usually you don't have that anyhow. Now this, uh, yes, this whole idea of mindfulness practice and that is combined with wisdom, with sampajanya. So I fully agree with you. And I think that he doesn't say that so explicitly because he is spontaneously <laughs> composing the metered verse and has to fit the meter. And it's difficult enough and it's actually, to me, uh, often hard to imagine how they could even do that. Like Mangala Sutta, Metta Sutta, when the Buddha composes this beautiful teaching following the, even the pattern of a gradual teaching and to be able to do that in that um, precision and gradual exposition uh, by spontaneous poetry. But of course now there are some limitations and if Malunkyaputta, if you asked him, and uh, he would give you just a longer pause explanation, I'm very sure he would mention wisdom and the insight, vipassana and these things. And we can also see you know, that this was a meditation object, a meditation approach you know, which carried him all the way into our hardship. We cannot do just with mindfulness. It includes all the whole Eightfold Path. In some way you can probably find the whole Eightfold Path in, in that little teaching there. So thank you for that comment. I fully agree. You know, the wisdom is, is, is included there. Although only sati is literally mentioned, I think the wisdom is meant to be included.